This is the John Oakley Show podcast. What a great day for talk radio, if I do say so myself. There's so much to talk about, so uh, let's hunker down and get to uh, some of the issues du jour. Shortly, we've got our panel and topics worthy of discussion, but they're all worthy of discussion, actually, and uh, including many that have uh, a legal dimension to them. And since it's beyond my pay grade, we always try to recruit Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners, into the mix so that he can sort things out for me. Joseph, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good, John. You're too kind to me. Am I? By half. (laughs) (laughs) All right, listen, uh, just to clarify this point of law, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is, you know, the Attorney General, or was, and uh, the Justice Minister, so the top legal authority in the land. Uh, Interesting that she would take, as her counsel, uh, a retired Supreme Court justice. What do you make of that? Look, I mean, obviously he's incredibly intelligent, uh, so he can give her advice. I think the issue here is solicitor client privilege, and she wants to be assured from somebody she feels confident in to give her advice as to what she can disclose and cannot. And there is a privilege between her and the Prime Minister and the PMO's office because she's counseled to giving advice to them, but it is totally open to the PMO's office to waive that privilege. So she's seeking out the best advice she thinks appropriate. There's lots of very good counsel who can give her that advice, but she's made a very good choice. But she is very nervous, I can tell, uh, and she really wants to make sure she gets sound advice as to what she can and cannot say. Well, because they say, right, there could be unintended consequences, but what jeopardy would she face, I mean, uh, in speaking her piece? Well, you know, if she's uh, still got a license to practice law, that could be the end of that. So if you disclose solicitor client privilege information without a proper waiver, Uh, That can be sanctioned before the law society for which you are uh, licensed. So that could end your career as a lawyer. Um, And there can be damages flowing from that as well. So if you breach a privilege, uh, there are monetary penalties for that as well. But this is different because it's playing at a very high political level where there's a lot more at play here. So, uh, you know, people have to try and remain calm here and do the right thing. And frankly, she should have the green light to talk about what actually did or did not happen, and it's up to the Prime Minister's office to waive that privilege, and that's exactly what they should do. All right. Interesting that you invoke the Law Society of Ontario here uh, and the sanctions, because uh, this is really coming out of left field. I was reading earlier this morning about a 30-year-old lawyer here in Toronto, deals with wills and estates, uh, was, I guess, charged with uh, producing child pornography and yet uh, the Law Society didn't necessarily kick him out of the profession. They just uh, reprimanded him, saying, well, you've got to stay away from kids, no contact with them, uh, but he can go on and continue to practice. I think he's since moved to Montreal to live with his dad. But, boy, that seems like it was rather light punishment for something that serious, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that's bad. Not good. I can't <laughs> defend that. You know, there's been a few things that the Law Society has, has decided to do which has really raised my eyebrows, and I think we need to be very careful. And what's very important for the protection of the public is as we go forward is licensing. You know, we need to ensure that people who are practicing law are, uh, you know, practicing at the highest levels we expect them to do, that they are qualified and are not breaching criminal law or any other law in that regard, but also that they are capable of doing the job that they do. And I think in this province we've seen uh, uh, far too much lax in licensing of uh, paralegals and lawyers, and uh, there needs to be a revamp in the law society about how we sanction people who commit offenses and also for those who are really not qualified to do the job. 
I appreciate your candor. Again, Joseph Newberger, uh, Global News Radio's law expert. So let's get to matters of the law. I'm kind of curious now, these uh, two individuals who were sentenced to life in prison back in 2015 for masterminding this plot to derail a Toronto-bound via passenger train from New York, uh, they get uh, another a do-over of sorts, or they're appealing anyway, based on something that's a little arcane, and uh, yeah. you've got to help me. I think, you know, I've been terming it uh, a technicality. It may not be. It it has to do with jury selection and that the right. judge had improperly instructed how the jury would be selected. Can you walk me through this? Yeah, so it's static versus rotating jurors who will try. And, and this is really a great point because it comes back to the liberals. So I'm, I'm going to – I'll explain this for the moment. So – when you have a challenge for cause, so we want to have an unbiased jury, uh, you pick two jurors to then assess the next number of jurors as to whether they would be biased or unbiased based upon the questions that are asked. Static jurors means that those two who are picked would remain throughout to pick the panel. And the preference and what should be the law is that you have rotating jurors. So after they preside over, let's say, two jurors, then you rotate to the next two. That's how I've experienced it in the jury selection process. It's better because you don't then maintain a bias in the two jurors who are decided to do this. So you have a rotation, and then the jury itself will there be involved in deciding what's an unbiased jury. I think that's a good process. That's what uh, uh, Husband's uh, trial, one of the main factors, was ordered back on, and that is really the preference. Second, something we should consider is the former justice minister, who is the subject of the first question we were talking about today, did knee-jerk reaction with Mr. Trudeau against the Saskatchewan case and wants to eliminate uh, um, challenge to jurors that lawyers have. So we need to be really careful in this country, really careful in this country, about ensuring that we have a right and an ability for any person facing a charge to pick a jury that is unbiased. And static jurors, not the best choice, rotating jurors better, uh, and challenges for cause is something we need to protect. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way yet, but we'll, we'll we'll get there once this legislation goes through. All right. I'm sorry I didn't know that. Next time I won't skip jury duty. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, with Joseph, what's that? They can be boring, but it, it's a really good democratic process. Okay, and I could use the 12 bucks a day, too. Uh, top up the fund. What are, what are they paying, by the way, for people to sit on juries these days? I think it's like $100 a week. It's not very much, but no. you do get fed. Mm. So there's at least a or something involved. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the all-you-can-eat barbecue. Uh, <laughs> let me get back to the legal stuff. Uh, you know, the story of the Christopher Husbands guy, the uh, Eaton Center shooter. Similarly, I think uh, he was, uh, I guess, given another trial. And uh, again, uh, he was convicted of second degree uh, or manslaughter rather than second degree right. murder. Two raps on second degree murder. So it's uh, a lesser uh, offense, I guess, so to speak. And seven years uh, is what he could sort of qualify for parole. He's been in pretrial custody or in prison awaiting on appeal. Uh, he's already logged seven years. So technically, I guess he could already apply for parole, could he not? Yeah, he's first got to be sentenced. And, and even though he's convicted of manslaughter, so it's not second degree murder, it's still punishable up to including life imprisonment. And this was still a shooting in the Eaton Center where there's collateral damage. It's in a very public environment. Regardless of the PTSD and disassociative state, there is a, uh, you know, there's consequences for that. So this sentence will not be light. I don't imagine it will be a light sentence. But what it reflects is a recognition by the jury of a real mental health issue that was operative at the time that this individual reacted, and it resulted in a diminished capacity, so it negated his intent 
his specific intent to commit murder. But that will help him somewhat on sentencing. But the sentencing still, I think, in my opinion, will be stiff. All right. Well, and uh, by the way, I just wanted to say parenthetically, I guess he was granted a retrial based on this whole jury selection thing again. I deemed it a technicality, but similar to uh, the case we just discussed with the via train plotters, uh, it was the same premise. But the PTSD argument, have the courts come to uh, more readily accept that as a defense? That's what his defense lawyer was saying in the interim, you know, from when he was initially uh, convicted and sentenced to second degree murder. Uh, more has opened up by way of understanding in the courts of PTSD and mental illness. Do you see that? It's getting better. Look, post-traumatic stress disorder is recognized by the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic you know, tool which is used by psychiatrists. So it's a legitimate mental health issue. And it's not just PTSD in itself. The argument between the two, the experts for the Crown and defense was also, was he in a disassociative state at the time? But the reality was the jury obviously accepted that he was laboring under a severe mental illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, possibly a disassociative state that didn't render him not capable of appreciating what he was doing, but he did not have the capacity to formulate the specific intent. I think it's an appropriate verdict. Mental health is a real issue, and it does impact people's responses to environmental stimuli, including encountering somebody who had viciously stabbed you or hurt you before until you draw a gun, but you cannot, you know, disassociate ourselves from the fact that he was carrying a gun in the Eaton Center, and that's going to play out in the sentencing. So I think the verdict is an appropriate verdict based upon sound psychiatric medical evidence. It recognizes that, but we still have to deal with an appropriate sentence for what was a very serious offense where there was collateral damage. And it's tragic to everybody, and so we need to deal with this in an appropriate manner. Well, how come the evidence submitted at trial, this new trial, uh, there was no way they could uh, make mention of a previous sexual assault? It was only deemed an assault, uh, seemingly far less egregious. Uh, No testimony from the child that was shot in the head, part of the collateral damage there. No knowledge that this individual husband was out on bail at the time. How come all of that stuff is omitted? It seems to me it might be relevant. Well, the reality is it's not. And, you know, a prior criminal record or an outstanding charge is prejudicial because it could lead a jury to decide that because he has a prior conviction or an outstanding charge, he's more than likely to have committed this offense called propensity reasoning. We can't do that. It needs to be on the facts of this offense specifically. We want clean findings of either guilt or innocence. So, you know, with all due respect, it's not not relevant. The 13-year-old, I'm not privy to the evidence specifically, but there is no dispute that that poor child was shot. The emotional impact of that evidence is tremendous. So it can be very, very prejudicial, but not very probative. In other words, there's no doubt that poor child was shot. There's no doubt that it's tragic and horrific. But will that overshadow the issues that need to be decided? And excluding that evidence may let a jury decide on the facts in a more appropriate manner than being swayed by something that's more salacious or more, you know, emotive. And that's something we need to avoid. We need to have a verdict on facts which are applicable and appropriate, and that's why certain evidence needs to be excluded. All right. Well, let me then end on a salacious and emotive note. (laughs) It has to do with the story out of Chicago and the actor, Empire actor, uh, Jussie Smollett. Uh, Now it seems like his whole story is unraveling, and uh, the police also uh, filed a charge against him for filing a false police report. Do we have penalties for doing that here in this oh, yeah. this country? And because, oh, you know, yeah. one of the penalties, he faces up to three years in prison, but there's also talk of him having to make restitution for the resources that were taken up 
following, uh, you know, this dog that wouldn't hunt. Yeah. Look, we don't use it enough in Canada. You can have public mischief charges for making a false allegation. And, you know, there are a number of cases which are brought forward by complainants that are completely fabricated, and, and we should use it more. And so I, I can't tell you. I mean, I've been following the story a little bit through CNN, and, of course, that's not the best gauge. But, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, if they stage this, this is really serious. It goes really beyond this is a real fraud perpetrated upon the police and possibly the court system here. So, yeah, he should pay for the expenses of the police in investigating this. But more importantly, this is a fraud. And if this is proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually orchestrated this and then lied to the police to manufacture this for some other ulterior motive, this should result in a very severe penalty. Sadly, because it also plays upon stereotypes. You know, he was allegedly attacked because of his his uh, his um, gender. You know, he is a gay man, and I think there's uh, you know, some Jewish comments as well. This is not good. We can't have this playing out. And so this is really, really very serious, and it's come out in a very interesting way and, and something we're going to have to follow very closely because I'm not sure the jury's out on this yet. We have to really take a look at it, and it needs to be litigated appropriately. Well, and the making restitution aspect was really interesting to me because some of the people who are taking it uh, at first blush saying it's could lead to hundreds of thousands of dollars for the time that, you know, 15 uh, detectives worked on this story concurrently uh, in Chicago, and it took several days, if not weeks, I guess, for them to uh, start to see the story unravel. Uh, We'll watch with interest where this one goes, and always, Joe, it's nice to have you weigh in on these matters and clarify points of law. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much, John. Have a great show, and take care. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.